Schools are at the heart of the community. If your school system is doing well, more than likely your community is doing well. But what if your school isn't doing well? What options do parents have and what changes can communities make to improve their school systems? These aren't easy questions. In fact, they're questions communities and legislators have been exploring for decades. Still, the only way to develop equitable solutions for all children is to continue the conversation. Today on Purposeful Pitch, we chat with former Michigan State Senator John Prose on the challenges facing parents, schools, and communities. Prose is an experienced former legislator with over two decades of government service at both the federal and state levels, including serving in the Michigan House of Representatives and most recently in the Michigan Senate. Today, he is the CEO of JP4 Government Solutions, providing strategic counsel to corporate manufacturing and not-for-profit organizations seeking to increase productivity while decreasing the uncertainty and burden of regulations. Welcome to The Purposeful Pitch, John. Great to be here. I uh, appreciate you coming in and, and wanted to chat with you today about uh, education. It's it's a critical topic uh, across the country, uh, always has been, always will be. Uh, but before diving into, into the topic, um, most, if not all of us, have had, you know, one educator uh, who has made you know, a, a, an indelible impact on our lives. Uh, I know you went to Lake Michigan Catholic schools. Is there someone that you can think of, a teacher or two, uh, who've had such an impact on your life? Well, it wasn't Sister Joseph Ann directly. And, <laughs> and of course, in the Catholic high school back then, there were still a few nuns that were that were in the uh, classroom. And Sister Joseph Ann had, had a penchant for throwing erasers at children that were not paying attention. <laughs> I only had it happen once and I ducked, so it worked out okay. Uh, no, we, we had uh, just an incredible experience. And for me, um, as I found my way towards public service over time, it really was sparked by Carol Dedan. Um, Carol was, uh, in this case, Mrs. Dedan, I have to be careful, rest her soul. Uh, Mrs. Dedan was just a, a, a fantastic teacher who really challenged me to look at life differently, to look in particular at what I already really enjoyed. I already really liked the idea behind government and American history and how that all kind of fit together. And in, in history and you know my parents will tell the story that I was playing uh, in the front yard um, playing football with my friends in the front yard on November 4th of 1980 and I don't know if you remember what that day is but that happened to be the day that Ronald Reagan was elected mm -hmm. president well I ended up breaking my collarbone that day that experience then led towards me being on the couch in a sling with my arm immobilized and my shoulder in pain. And I'm watching that evening the electoral results and my parents were just shocked that, that I had any interest whatsoever, even at that young age, at I 10 know, years I know old I at the time. That, uh, I was nine, so I know I wasn't uh, tuned in, but... Just stunning that I, apparently I had some interest, and I did. I really, I always really appreciated government and American history. So Carol took that as a teacher in, in, in high school at Lake Michigan Catholic and really did a, man, a, a, a masterful job of making me look at things beyond what my small little lens was. And I think ultimately that's what teachers have such an amazing ability to do, especially the really good ones. Um, the really good ones have an amazing ability to take somebody's particular interests and broaden their horizons to such a degree that it, it grows their entire exposure, more of a full spectrum of exactly what it is that government in American history is. And I'll give you one quick example. Uh, this was just a stunning um, example of how that is. The 1989 uh, or 88 elections, um, for those that might remember in history, was the re-election 
uh, or rather the first election of Vice President George H.W. Bush. Mm-hmm. So George H.W. Bush was running for the Republican nomination as the Vice President of the United States under Reagan for eight years. And then, of course, then, then we had um, a whole slew of Democrat candidates. One of the candidates at that time, you might remember, was the Reverend Jesse Jackson. Of course. The Rainbow Push Coalition and so forth. So it was really an interesting time in American history. And we were going to do a debate. There was going to be a literal, you will research and then portray on stage in front of the entire Lake Mission Catholic High School the following. The exact debate format of all the Democrats and all the Republicans. So sure enough, who did I end up with? Not George H.W. Bush, <laughs> but the Reverend Jesse Jackson. And it caused me to look at life differently. It caused me to look at history and American history and the differences on that spectrum of politics in a new way. And it really kind of set the stage for what would then be Marquette University, Michigan State University, uh, uh, and then a career in public service. Yeah, and they challenge you. I mean, that was Absolutely. that was with with my experience with uh, Helen Anderson, Mrs. Anderson, who I I don't believe is with us any longer. And back in uh, at Massapequa High School uh, in tenth grade, and and I was just kind of you know flying by the seat of my pants. wasn't really uh, applying myself as I should at that time and and she called me out on it and I was in a B-level English class and she said to me you know you are much smarter than this and I want to bring you up to the A class not to pat myself on the back or uh, you know propose that I'm I'm smarter than I am but you know, she challenged me. She saw potential, uh, and because of her, I, I started applying myself from that day moving forward. And uh, I, I can't, uh, I can't thank her enough, and can't imagine where I would be or where you would be without, uh, you know, these these teachers in our lives. Um, so you you mentioned, you know, being interested in the election uh, in 1980. Uh, so obviously, you you always had it was kind of ingrained. Uh, uh, an interest in the public sector. Right. So, so is is that why you decided to pursue life in the public sector? I, you know, I, I think I think for the most part, I kind of fell into it. Um, you know, you then go to college, and I went to Marquette University in Milwaukee, Wisconsin, and and I had the opportunity then to take all these different core curriculum classes, and and of course, in these liberal arts, Catholic. Jesuit universities, it's it's philosophy, it's theology, um, in, introductory sort of courses like world history and so forth, where there's 1,500 kids in that particular class because okay. everybody has to take it at Marquette. Um, there's the, that core curriculum is really really important. And what I found was is that that my interest was more because I found success in the classroom. I had no clue what I wanted to do. I didn't really ever plan on running for elective office. Never really thought that that was going to be the direction, but I always knew I could. So that was the interesting thing. It was always in the back of my mind that I bet I could do that. I bet I could do that. And then I interned um, while at Marquette for Congressman Fred Upton, who's still our congressman in the southwest corner of the state. Uh, and and Fred gave me the first opportunity then to, to intern. The internship led to uh, me trying to find a job on his staff. And I was denied the job mm. right out of college. It was a little bit surprising to me. And at that point, eye-opening, huh? it was eye-opening. It really was. And I thought, here, I interned for the guy. I've been volunteering for him, not on the campaign side, because I was always really interested in the public policy side, not the campaign side necessarily. And I knew it was important, but it wasn't, it wasn't really my favorite thing 
to do and or you were want young. to be. You were young. And yeah, yeah, exactly. And it's funny that um, that has then continued to lead on through the rest of my my career, which we probably will talk a bit about. But I will say this: that that um, the interest in that really was sparked by by the kind of work that you were doing in the community that you lived in and you served. And in this case, I grew up in St. Joseph. Congressman Upton, Fred, is from St. Joseph, and I, I had the opportunity uh, to intern between my junior and senior year. Like I said, that led then to not getting the job, but then after grad school at Michigan State, ironically, with a master's in education, I don't know if you knew that, um, because I just wasn't quite sure where I was going to go, but I knew I needed to be with people. I knew I needed to be in an environment where where learning was a big part of, of, of how to work together, how to find ways to broaden the horizons of individuals' minds so that they understood that there's a new way to think about things, a new way to look at things. Solutions can be found as you broaden and work together. And um, so that's really kind of the, the process that I went through. And Marquette was really the great kickoff to that. And Father O'Brien was really the one that was the kick in the pants on that one too. He made me think of things very differently than also kind of with that Jesuit philosophy of always asking why, always digging deeper, always seeking the next answer to the question, not just simply because somebody told you that that's what the answer is, but why is the answer that answer? And maybe it's not, maybe it should be something other than what you've been told it is. And I think that inquisitive nature, that that Socratic method of constantly asking questions really has led me towards um, the public policy arena even more strongly. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was that ma- that master's uh, in education and you know, your your life in, 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 in the public sector. Why I wanted to speak to you because, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we're in a in a critical place uh, juncture as it relates to education. It seems as we we always will be because uh, the importance of education, it's at the heart of the community uh, and, you know, it's something that we always need to be talking about how do we improve uh, the education system? Even if it's even if it's running really well, there is still area or room for improvement. I think just as variety, the variety of people that we have, yeah. the differences in people. Of course, there's always a need for that. You bet. So, what you know, based on your experience and and, and work in in the public sector, what was your biggest concern related to education uh, in in Michigan and and the country? I think the biggest concern that that I found as I started to, and I started in my first term in the House of Representatives, uh, elected in 04 and started serving in 2005. And that was, if you might recall at that point in time, was the the second set of two years, right? So Granholm was elected, Jennifer Granholm was elected governor in 2002. 2004 is when I came into the legislature, beginning in 2005. And then Lieutenant Governor John Cherry was the the tip of the spear when it came to education reform in Michigan. And the Cherry Commission was was put together on behalf of the governor. And he led that. So Lieutenant Governor John Cherry led that commission, which sought to answer the question why it was that we were becoming an outbound state, meaning we were educating with these incredible 18 public universities that we have and 28 community colleges. We're educating these kids and and students, both traditional and non-traditional, all across the spectrum, and we're sending them out of state. If we're sending them out of state to the Atlantas and Chicago's and Washington D.C.s and and so forth, then what 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 are we doing as it relates to um, the concerns about brain drain? Well, those concerns continue today, but the Cherry Commission very directly said at the time we need to change the Michigan curriculum, and the curriculum needs to identify how we're going to keep students here so that we have the highest rigor, the highest relevance, and the greatest success for students. And what did we find? We found that in fact, when compared to other high schools, 
uh, across the nation that not only did we not have curriculum requirements, but then we had substandard results. Mm. And if we had substandard results, what we're going to do to have both those two things increase, both at least a minimum set of requirements and then a set of expectations that we would achieve better than average results. And, and that continues to be a fight today on how much we require high school students to achieve and whether or not those achievements match the kind of results that we want to see. Michigan still has a ways to go. And the debate now has shifted uh, towards this this not brain drain so much, but this very, very tight labor market today as we sit here in in uh, 2019 and ask the question, how do we have enough people to fill the jobs that are needed today from everything from the trade skills all the way through computer science and everything in between. Yeah, there How are a couple of that. Yeah, there are a couple of programs here in the state, and uh, I'm sure other other states across the country are, are probably doing the same or uh, having those same issues and and looking at potential solutions. You've got Going Pro and Launch Michigan. Uh, you know, programs that are are looking at how do we we've got this this great need. Mm-hmm. Uh, from a uh, you know from an industry perspective and, and filling jobs uh, and and not necessarily you know those that students are looking at or first looking at uh, or maybe they just don't know about them and informing them of the opportunities that exist uh, within these positions and you know that these are careers they're not jobs that there is opportunity to flourish uh, within these positions it doesn't necessarily need to be four years of college or bust there's there's plenty of opportunity for both uh, you know to exist uh, in a in a in a flourishing economy and that's the irony of the cherry commission results the results of the Jerry Commission back uh, in the mid 2000s, early you know 2004, 5, 6, that kind of time frame, um, the legislature was responding to the need to have more four-year college graduates because if you looked at say North Carolina with the research triangle, uh, Michigan looked at that and Jennifer Granholm, the governor at the time, looked at that and said, why can't we keep those high 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 intense kids that do so well in the classroom and are our new scientists our new PhDs, our new master's degrees, our four-year college graduates. And so the push was towards this higher four-year college degree. Um, That led then to what we see today, which is this conflict between how much do we want our students to track towards four-year universities and how much do we want them to track towards job skills necessary to fill the careers of today. Um, And someplace in between there is the right answer, of course. Yeah. Um, And that's ironically what I've seen in the 14 years that I was in the legislature, six in the House and eight in the Senate, was this pendulum swing between between that un... Really, the the two can be married together. It's not an either or. It's not an either or. And that's because kids are different. Yeah. Kids are just very, very different. Well, I think um, some of it is because we have been programmed as parents. I'm a parent of a 16-year-old and 12-year-old, and my daughter's graduating. Uh, my oldest is graduating in June of next year. And if I had known then, or if I hadn't been programmed about four years of college or bust, I may have counseled her differently as far as, you know, why not take a few uh, career-based courses, an internship, something along those lines to discover what else is out there. Absolutely. Because it's all about the career. I mean, ultimately, that's right. How you get to the career is, I mean, is is part of the the conversation. Yes. But whether it's 
through a career-based training program or whether it's through four years of college or a combination of both, ultimately at the end, when they're 24, 25, it's about where they are in their career. That's exactly right. And then now you have this this um, ever-growing problem of the amount of money that it takes to actually get through a four-year degree. Yeah. So families are, are, are finding themselves bankrupt um, is struggling to make the payments, massive debt that these students carry. Uh, so that becomes a part of, of this conversation then too. And see, that's the thing. It's not just, like you said, it's not an either or. It's an and conversation. And we have concerns about today's jobs that need to be filled. And we have concerns about the amount of time and money that it takes for students to achieve those four-year degrees. And we see that the marketplace is demanding more and more of X. And so we're always going to see that pendulum swing and we're always going to see kind of that landscape shift and change. And the legislature is reflective of, of what our own society mm-hmm. today, um, certainly the leadership of a governor or a particular legislator or the legislature as a whole can can have an impact on that. See the Cherry Commission from 2004, five and six, where we set in place a, a whole new set of curriculum requirements that your daughter, my senior daughter, uh, and my junior son are seeing today, my seventh grade daughter is an entirely different sort of person than the other two. Yeah. Um, how's it going to look for them? Where are they going to go? How are they going to address it? And so that flexibility that we demand of our teachers and our students and our curriculum and our superintendents and our school boards, all locally elected, becomes the real challenge then too. Where does that flexibility lie when the state requires so much? Yeah. And I think it's important that we take a step back and, and make sure that folks realize we're not anti four-year school. No. Uh, because, I mean, that's that should be a part of the equation. Absolutely. Uh, and they're still, that is the right path for many, many children, many families, uh, and they should pursue that option. Uh, but again, it, it comes down to the, it's an and conversation, not either or. Exactly. Um, now, I mentioned I'm, I'm I'm originally uh, from Massapequa, that's in New York, and uh, we didn't have school choice uh, in New York, Mm -hmm. uh, especially on Long Island, uh, where it's, you know, the the school choice was you go to your public school district uh, in your your community, or, you know, you can pay to go to private school or parochial school. Uh, Those, that was the school choice. It's different here uh, in Michigan and many other uh, places across the country. Um, you know, what are your thoughts on on school choice? Is, is it is it the right uh, the right op, the, the right uh, path that we should uh, be following here in Michigan and, and other places? I don't think there's a doubt that we should. And and the reason that I say that is is that ultimately parents need to be engaged, must be engaged. It's required that they be engaged in the success of their children, in the success of what their children are receiving as an outcome in the process. That and that that means they have a responsibility to ensuring that the kids are learning that their own children are learning. It is not something that you can offload to your local school district or even your school of choice. It, it, it is something that parents must take as a primary responsibility. So so those those nights I spent uh, screaming at my daughter over math problems. I hope you were saying, just reading po- saying- <laughs> politely and quietly, not screaming at her about it. <laughs> So you're saying that's a must that I that the, it is in, in, in a more delicate manner I in a more delicate manner yeah. it is, it is and ultimately when you look at um, successful kids there isn't an educator out there a study that's been been, been published um, a longitudinal study that's looked at decades worth of engagement 
parents who are engaged with children have more successful children. There's just no doubt about it. But I'm an English guy, John. I'm not a math guy. There you go. Well, well, you know what? And thank goodness I have the benefit, too, of being more of an English guy and much less of a math person than also. Never mind that I spent 12 years on appropriations with a $58 billion budget in the state of Michigan. But I will tell you that, that, that certainly... Um, Working with the benefit of my wife being the much more the math person, uh, you know, a director of finance for a Fortune 100, 125 corporation. She does a mar- marvelous job of filling that role. I, but engagement first and foremost by parents. And so what does that lead to? That leads to the question that you asked. Is schools of choice a worthwhile endeavor? And it's a worthwhile endeavor if it's not um, if it is engaged by parents in a way that seeks the best benefit of those kids in the classroom for their success in the future. And, and by that, I mean that, that kids that are being tracked towards, let's say, today's trade skills can now seek to go to the school that focuses on the opportunities for trade skills. So what we're finding is, is that in, in some of our school districts, and in particular in Berrien County, which is my home county in the southwest corner, the school districts are, are not all installing a fabricating laboratory. They're not paying for CNC machining so that every school district has their own CNC machine. Not every school district is setting up a a nursing laboratory to be able to teach nursing, which is more of your trade skill sort sort of activity, right? So instead what they're doing is that students are self selecting into those programs and schools of choice allows them the opportunity to do so. The challenge with it is, is that the schools of choice right now that, that folks are choosing are often school districts that are showing failures to educate, that are showing challenges to educate, that have underlying concerns in the educational process where students are choosing to go elsewhere. And of course, in my communities, you, you think very quickly of Benton Harbor schools. Uh, and Benton Harbor schools, uh, be, with schools of choice as an option, has parents choosing to send their kids elsewhere, whether it be to the surrounding school districts um, or, or busing them to other districts and so forth. So. You, you do see that engagement by parents choosing to want to engage to ensure that their kids are, are, are finding success. I think schools of choice sharpens everybody's interest in the benefit of, of educating children. That's the whole goal behind it is you want successful children and as parents, we want our kids to be sexful, successful. Um, but it's a big debate because there's school districts like a Benton Harbor now who have found that, that they've not been able to keep up in the educational success arena and they're finding themselves further and further in debt at the state level. Um, those two things have led then to continuing decline in enrollment. Um, should those students be forced to stay in a declining enrollment, a failure in the educational process, and an inability to be able to get, get um, the kind of success necessary to be even career ready? Well, the answer for some is no. And for me, as a public policy official, I completely supported the opportunity for those kids yeah. to succeed elsewhere. But is there, is there opportunity and is it possible for the community to, to rally around Benton Harbor or a Benton Harbor-like situation and uh, you know, raise, help raise it? I, 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 uh, I think mean, that absolutely. might be a little bit Pollyannish, but... I mean, I, I think it's, as I mentioned, it's at the heart of the community. So how can all of the members of the community, the residents, legislators, parents, business owners, you know, how do we work collaboratively to start to, and it's not an overnight, it's not something that's going to happen overnight, unfortunately, but, uh, you know, it, 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 
it can be done, can it? I think it can. Uh, I, we haven't yet found the formula for that. Uh, the state of Michigan has been engaged with lo- the local elected school board um, in an off and on relationship for many years now. Uh, you know, the, the, the legislature with the Snyder administration in my last eight years in the legislature talked at length about both communities, uh, municipalities that, that were finding themselves in debt or, or failing to maintain um, proper accounting procedures and so forth. And the same situation with our school districts. And Benton Harbor is not the only school district in Michigan that faces these challenges. Um, there are some 41 other school districts that have significant um, financial concerns and issues, as well as outcome issues and concerns. And, and that, that means kids' success needs to be at the heart of the conversation, first and foremost. And so when we can recognize that, that, that children's success is paramount in our goals and objectives, then all of the adult decision-making, all of the adult concerns, all of the adult issues that we have, including finance, start to fade away pretty quickly because we've recognized um, the kind of responsibility necessary for all of us to see success for all of our kids. Uh, it's going to be a huge challenge. There's no question about it. And uh, I think overall, the educational system itself has a, a multitude of people who care. I don't think teachers get started because they have an interest in in watching their students fail. Of course not. They have an interest from day one. Many of these folks knew they were going to be teachers from day one. It is the, it is ingrained in their DNA to be successful in the classroom with teachers, uh, as teachers for for students and student success. Uh, boy, you, you've got to find ways to be able to solve some of the challenges that are the adult problems, so that the kid problems are are solved in the process too. Yeah, uh, but are there are there do you, do you have any concerns that there are too many choices? Is there, uh, you know, is, do you get to a point where you've flooded the market with mo- more options than are really beneficial to a community? I don't think so. I think that that options require parents to be engaged and take responsibility. That's ultimately what it comes down to. And and if for some reason, uh, uh, Plan A. School District A, School District B, and School District C, if School District A can't cut it, what are we going to do? You have to answer the question of whether or not that ought to consi- con- continue to be a considered option. Um, and the fact of the matter is, is that we have, what, some 1,500, 1,700 school districts, something like that in the state of Michigan, um, the majority of which are well over the majority are, are financially solvent, financially sound, educating kids to the best of their ability. Can we improve? Sure. We can always improve every one of the school districts, even our most high-functioning school districts can continue to improve. But what's at the root of it? We talked about it at the very beginning. Parental involvement and engagement is the critical component to that. So, uh, so how do you how do you how do you capture that engagement where it's more challenging, where it's not necessarily, um, you know, there are uh, you've got families that are just not necessarily able to provide that level of support where in other communities they are. And that's where economic development comes in. So you can't take a school district and and say that it is a unique and wholly separate part of the community. It's a part of the fabric of the community as a whole, right? So if the fabric of the community is struggling in many other areas, then also it's going to be more and more difficult for us to be able to solve some of the problems that are underlying in a school district, let's say or in a municipal government, let's say. Uh, those are two areas, though, that, that, that are solvable through some of the economic opportunities that can exist, whether it be new industries and jobs, whether it be uh, a recognition that tourism is a part of that. 
whether it be the opportunities for for engagement in in new growth and development in the community so that the tax base increases. What happens if a tax base increases? Some of the concerns about the financial underpinnings of an institution start to go away. You start to address some of the infrastructure needs. You start to recognize that the curriculum needs are solved through some of the new tools that are on the marketplace today to deal with some of those that that are, are the most challenged in the classroom. Uh, the fact is, is that there is there is a, a, a huge amount of financing that, that is provided to school districts across the state. We've got to be able to see the results of that financing with engagement by the local school boards, engagement by families in an environment that shows economic vitality. Yeah. And I think that's, you know, one, one of the uh, one of the clients that we work with is Capital Impact Partners, Mm -hmm. uh, and they are heavily involved in economic development and improving um, uh, prospects in Detroit. And part of their uh, part of their uh, charge is density, increasing density in Detroit, because, you know, to your point about increasing the tax base will, um, will ultimately help raise uh you know some opportunity with for the schools as well absolutely um well i i I, it's unfortunate but uh, i I know we're not going to solve uh you know the the uh all of the ills uh or challenges that uh, that face educators in, in schools today is there from your perspective, I know we have, uh, we're fortunate to have a great number of, of uh, school districts across across Michigan and educators who are passionate about doing uh, great work and committed to children. Uh, but I, I would like to end on kind of an upbeat note uh, and want to continue this conversation uh, at a later date because it is one that, you know, we could have spent hours uh, talking about today, uh, but we don't have the time to do that. Uh, so what would you... Uh, Looking at it upbeat, what what do Michiganders and the country as a whole, as it relates to education, you know, what are some of the positives that that we can build on? Well, I think the the positives, in, in particular in Michigan, I think we can talk about the U.S. as a whole. But Michigan, if we look in that arena, we we have an incredible community college support system. These are locally elected school boards, so there is a local governance at the both at the community college level, by the way and then also in our local school districts themselves. And I think that that local governance can recognize the nuances of, say, a Detroit concern and a Flint concern versus a Traverse City, Kalamazoo, or Benton Harbor, or St. Joseph, right? Each of these local school boards then can be reflective of the community in a, in a really uh, uh, flexible sort of manner. Uh, what's needed in Benton Harbor may not be needed in, in, in Niles. What's needed in Dowagic may not be needed in, in East Grand Rapids. And East Grand Rapids may not be needed What's in, in Flint or Traverse City or, or Alpena, right? So you know that there's all these differences. That's where our local elected school boards come in. And then having enough flexibility from the legislative side of things to A, be accountable, but B, ensure that you have the kind of flexibility that gives you the ability to, to address what's locally needed. Um, each community is so different. So how do we have standards that are acceptable and are rigorous, followed by the recognition that the local elective school boards have the opportunity to grow and develop what is best for those particular students. And then finally, parents that, that, that seek the highest level of success for their kids, as is possible. 
even those parents who may not have had the opportunity to be in those community colleges or four-year institutions. The fact is we have an incredibly robust system in the state of Michigan. What we need and continue to need is a focus on outcomes, a focus on outcomes that are verifiable and a focus on outcomes that match kind of that return on investment. After all, these are all of our tax dollars that participate in this, right? And when the state has a vested interest, uh, we as taxpayers, by definition, should have that same vested interest. Just because our sales tax dollars, most of which go to our classrooms, head to Lansing first and then are distributed from Lansing, doesn't absolve us as, as citizens of the state of Michigan from ensuring accountability. So there's so much that we can chew on in this particular topic, but the, the key to this is what? That, that a vibrant community has a strong educational system, an economic opportunity um, uh, menu, a suite of options available for, for the citizens in that particular community, accountability to ensure that it is, it is highest and best use of the tax dollars, and then ultimately you see kids succeeding and kids succeeding means success for the community as a whole. So I think we have a lot to chew on, but there's there are, are, are millions of people in the state of Michigan who want to see success and want to see that rising tide for everybody. Uh, my hope is, is that we continue to find ways to do it better and better each year. As I said, I think this is, I would love to have you back um, when we have a little bit more time so we can continue the conversation. Uh, until that point, um, you know, would love, I'm sure, you know, folks listening would, would, would like to hear what does the future hold, you know, for, for John Pros? I mean, it's, it's, are you looking to go back into the public sector or, or what, are, what, is, what is your future hold? Like we talked about at the beginning of the podcast today, I, I, I've always had an interest in public service. I've always had an interest. And in fact, that was in part because of my parents and the, the kind of service that they provide in the community to their church. Um, I'm finding myself answering those same calls and, and, and getting back into public service in any way that I possibly can after 24 plus years of working in in public service for those in the community. So it's genetically ingrained into me already. I've got that, um, whether or not in the future, uh, the citizens of Southwest Michigan or Michigan as a whole, think that I would be good in the public service arena again. I think it's up to a whole lot of people to answer that question, probably not as much up to me. Uh, in the meantime though, I'll continue to contribute in my community and be a part of however I can be helpful to, to see success for everybody. Good luck to you in the future, John, and thank you again for uh, for coming in. It was uh, great having you for this conversation, a, a, a crucial uh, conversation on education, and I uh, look forward to uh, continuing that conversation uh, in the future. Appreciate it. Thanks for the invitation.